On today's show, the spectacular opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, suspense, intrigue, great performances, and fascinating writing if you actually go in and read the script. Welcome to season two of the Impactful Writing Podcast. This is episode four of our seven-part series based on great opening scenes. And today we're talking about Quentin Tarantino's alternate history flick, Inglorious Bastards. I'm Jay Shear, and guess what? You already seen him on screen. Caleb Monroe is back. How you doing, Caleb? I am good. I'm glad to be back. It's been it's been two episodes since I've been here. Been two episodes. You were on the you basically were on the first one, and then and then it was like you weren't you weren't around after the first one, and then you're back for the fourth one. So yes, I think we were, I, I, like I think it. we were moving from London to L.A. during the first one, and then from L.A. to Savannah during the second. One, so yeah. So this is this here's here's uh, interesting fun facts for. Only in 2020 or 2021 would this happen, but I started, we both started out on the West Coast. And in the meantime, I'd driven all the way across the United States. You've flown all the way across the United States, all the way across the Atlantic and back, and then you stopped in the East Coast. So there's a lot of movement, a lot of movement out these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're, you're still home-based in, in Los Angeles. I'm no longer home-based in Los yes. Angeles. Los Angeles is still home, although we have only spent three years there, I mean, three weeks there this year, yeah. and that's all we're going to spend in LA this year. So. Um, pretty wild man we, we've actually been we've been talking about how london feels more like home because we've lived uh, it, we've lived in that apartment in london more over the past two years than we've lived anywhere else um so yeah so here's here's my question for you before we jump into the the actual show do you feel like the stories you want to tell or the way you want to tell stories changes as you move to different places specifically especially like london does that make you want to tell like a sherlock holmes type of story or does that you know does it influence you in some way being in a different environment no no. (laughs) not Um, at all all. uh, i mean i i i am a deep deep sherlock holmes nerd Um, oh so you know i've read all the stories and books i don't know two three four times and nice love all the various uh incarnations um uh aaron actually worked on the pilot of elementary no Um, way yes cool and so yeah so that's just a as it really has anything to do with changing the subject or the type of story i want to tell but i am just since you mentioned it yes total sherlock (laughs) holmes nerd that's awesome um and uh, but the kind of stories that I tend to tell, yeah, and you know, it's a little bit different for everyone. Is but I tell some pretty, I tell some pretty pushed genre stuff. Mm. So horror or fantasy, or this yeah. next one I'm doing is kind of a, a action horror type of thing. Oh, nice! It, you know, in the vein of something like Blade or Underworld, and nice. Uh, and so those are all. Even if you said it in a city. You're setting it in a fictional version of that city, a super fictional version of that city to begin with. <laughs> right, right. So um, because my stuff tends to kind of be in another world already, where yeah. I am in this world doesn't have a huge impact on it. Um, uh. But it will affect sometimes when I do need a real moment or real world location. Um, I do tend to use somewhere that I've been because sure. I can describe that well. Yeah. Um, but it does, it's not necessarily the place I am right now, but it does matter if I've been there, you know? Yeah, so, um, exactly. so, you know, I wrote a horror story a couple of years ago and I set the whole thing in Oxford, um, nice. <laughs> which, which Aaron and I go to uh, every, we've been lucky enough to go once a year for the past three years, every wow. 
um, every chance. We, well, actually, we didn't go in 2020. So two years, 18, 19, and 20. Sure, sure. Uh, love Oxford. and But there's this funny little quirk in Oxford that hmm. um, Oxford is five minutes off from the rest of Greenwich Mean Time. Is it <laughs> uh, really? Yes. Well, I mean, it's it is now technically all part of Greenwich Mean Time, but, but the clocks still ring five minutes after um, um. in sort of to acknowledge that history. Because basically what happened is the reason they standardized time zones in the first place is because of trains. So ah. until until trains arrived, it didn't matter, you know. Right. Then when when trains came, they needed to standardize something so they could schedule. You know, here's how you know when to be here for this train. Right. And so they were doing all of that. And Oxford's been around since ten hundreds, eleven hundreds. Wow. And Oxford was basically like, yeah, do whatever you want with your time zones. We're sticking with Oxford time. Sorry. Like <laughs> yeah. like we've been here for a long time, and we're just not doing it. <laughs> we're Oxford. This is and, the most British thing we've ever talked about in this podcast. <laughs> and so they kept with that for a long time. And they still, to this to this day, the, the clocks and classes will start, not in five all the minutes. colleges, but the clocks and classes in some of the colleges are five minutes off from the rest of England because of- That's uh, hilarious. Now, so do, do the students have to actually show up five minutes like later or earlier or whatever? Yeah. It's like their class starts at 8.05 instead of 8. You know? and, um, <laughs> That's hilarious. But ba I wrote a horror story based on this five-minute overlap. Um, oh, nice! Uh, between um, All Hallows Eve and All Saints Day. Um, nice. And I was like, for five minutes in Oxford, it's both. And so I wrote a, <laughs> I wrote a horror story around that. But that was because it was a place I had been and knew. And that's cool, actually. <laughs> um, and I could just like I could describe where I knew, like, oh, you turn right here, and then you go left, and then you you know what I mean, and like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a, because most of my stuff is, is in some sort of fantastic setting. Right. I'm not a big, write What, you know, in a liberal right. sense kind of person. Right. But sometimes when what you're doing requires a really realistic grounding, yeah. um, then setting it somewhere that you've at least been even once makes a big difference. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, I am currently on the treasure coast of Florida, and I will say it has influenced me to read a lot more pirate-based material for some reason. Um, I read uh, Pirate Latitudes by Michael Crichton, and now I'm reading On mm -hmm. Stranger Tides by Tim Powers, I think is his name. Um, and I do not know why that is, but apparently when in Rome, <laughs> it went on the treasure coast. Why not? Why not? You know, <laughs> why, why not? not? Um, uh, so there's yeah. a lot of Southern Gothic, uh, and ghost stories based you know, here in Savannah. Uh, I mean, True. Midnight in the Garden of Evil, very yep. famous, but also, yep. you know, Flannery O'Connor grew up here. Yep. Um, you can still go see her childhood home and the crazy crib that her parents kept her in and her creepy, creepy <laughs> dolls and paintings. And you're like, Oh, I can see how she turned out to be who she is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Oh, this makes a lot more sense now. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, this is the Impactful Writing Podcast, like I mentioned earlier, and it is produced by the Reclamation Society, which is part of the Story Geeks Network and the Art of Storytelling YouTube channel. If you missed last week's show, or maybe two weeks ago now, the opening scene of Pixar's Up, 
I think you should really listen to that one. We had uh, Chris Rosa, uh, Caleb Monroe's podcasting partner, old podcasting yes, partner. My, my friend, nemesis, podcasting partner. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and opposing I felt, worldview. I felt like I was right in the middle. I felt like I was right in the middle of a Mark Miller fight on that one, but I think I might side <laughs> with Chris. But that's a whole different topic. Um, but you can listen to those exclusively on the Story Geeks podcast feed. The video did not work on that show. We tried to get the video to work. Video would not work on that show. So that is an audio only release on the podcast channel. Please go check that out. And just a quick scheduling update, because we've been having issues with live video in general, we are not streaming these anymore. So they will be out on YouTube and on the podcast feed on the same days. I'm not going to stagger them anymore. If you prefer video, go watch it on YouTube. If you prefer audio, go listen to it on the podcast channel. Either way, if you want to see our faces or if you're so tired of our faces that you just want to hear our voices, there you go. Um, but let's get into it, Caleb. Let's get into Inglorious Bastards. Um, the first thing that's fascinating about this scene, and this is funny because Caleb, when he, when we first logged on here, um, and we started talking, he goes, I forgot that it was 20 minutes. And what's so fascinating about that is that you can sort of describe this entire scene in about 15 words, 15, 16 words in Nazi occupied France, an SS officer visits the home of a man who's hiding juice and it's 20 minutes of that just description and like like that's it that's just the and so it's 17 pages in the script um the script is worth mentioning so i'll mention it several times because i read it this morning um and it's about yeah you said 20 minutes um so the reason this film makes the list is because this scene is phenomenally well crafted particularly around suspense and the way that tarantino plays with that tension and that suspense is pretty masterful which we'll get into um, and I want to do a quick shout out too, because the Lessons from the Screenplay YouTube channel does have a brilliant video breaking down this scene, specifically from a suspense standpoint. So you should definitely check that out. But my first question for you, Caleb, I got a couple of them here um, that I'm packaging together. Uh, before we talk about Inglorious Bastards specifically, I want to talk in, talk in terms of Tarantino's body of work a bit more broadly. Mm -hmm. How does Tarantino's work resonate with you personally? It's he tends to be a little bit of a polarizing figure. So how does he, how does it fit into your fandom? And then secondly, as you consider that question, do you think this is his best opening scene of all his opening scenes? Cause he has a lot of pretty good opening scenes. So what's your overall perspective on Tarantino? And then specifically, where does this fall? Where does this opening scene fall in his catalog? Ooh, so that's the tough one. I, I'll start by saying uh, I'm a big fan of Tarantino and his nice. work. Um, I, I think Kill Bill is is one of the masterpieces of 21st century cinema so far. Mm. Um, and I, I would say this is one of his best opening scenes. Um, mm. I, I don't actually don't know if I can choose. <laughs> um, uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. Also mm. a masterful opening scene, also suspense-based. Mm. And uh, even though he did not direct this, and so a lot of people don't treat it as a pure uh, Tarantino film, uh, but he did it with Robert Rodriguez, who's a longtime collaborator, and they've done a lot of stuff together. Yeah. Um, uh, I love the opening for um, From Dust Till Dawn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. also my favorite George Clooney performance of all time. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a great. I have a, I have a really soft spot for that movie. That I think that's fantastic, and 
I know that he was completely, completely rewritten and you can actually buy the version of his script for Natural Born Killers. It's, it was published uh-huh. as a little book. He, he was completely rewritten for Natural Born Killers. And so I don't know how much of the opening of that, I, I don't know how, if any of that was in his script, but I do love right. the opening scene for that movie as well. Yeah, I, my wife and I recently watched um, Pulp Fiction and that's a great opening scene too. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those things where he's very disarming in his in his in his opening scenes he's he has a way of drawing you into what could be mundane but feels much more important and you're just waiting for that shoe to drop like where is it that's the importance is going to be and he does that he does that in a lot of his in a lot of his scenes so but you're you you would consider yourself a pretty big tarantino fan yes yeah yes yes well i'll say this. also i will say um his his short film from yeah. Four Rooms. If you mm. haven't seen that, I have not. It's one of my favorite endings of his. Um, really? Yes. It's a, interesting. You know, it's, a, it's a it's four short films, hmm. um, and each one takes place at a hotel in a in a room in a hotel. And Tim Roth plays the bellboy who's going between them. And oh, cool. uh, Tarantino did one. Rodriguez did one. And I can't remember the other two filmmakers at the moment, but his short film there. It, uh, I, I love, I know we're talking about beginnings, but yeah, great <laughs> that's awesome. I'm going to go, I'm going to go watch that. Hopefully they're on YouTube. Um, so, so very quickly, I think that this opening scene is the, is my personal favorite thing that Tarantino has done, at least that I've seen. Right. So I haven't seen his entire body of work. I've seen a lot of it. Um, I, I think that this is my favorite scene that he's ever, he's ever written and directed. Um, as far as his storytelling goes, Uh, I think he's a phenomenal writer. I think he's an even better student and observer of film, which is kind of crazy because he's such a good writer to to say that he's that good at studying and observing film means he's like, maybe he's quite possibly one of the best film students on the face of the earth. Um, If you ever hear him talk in a podcast, the, the width and breadth of films that he has not only seen, but can describe to you about what makes them great or what doesn't make them great it's pretty amazing to hear him go through that so as a writer i mean i think it makes his i think it really influences writing and what makes that what makes his films interesting to me personally and also (laughs) turns me off at times with him is that they feel like someone took obscure films from the 30s 40s i feel like he kind of skips the 50s i feel like he doesn't quite have as much of a fandom around the 50s as he does in the 60s and the 70s so he kind of likes all those different decades besides the 50s and then he kind of puts them in a blender and makes a smoothie and that smoothie is whatever the latest tarantino film is um and when that works it is awesome so my personal two favorite films of his are inglorious bastards and the extended version the four-hour version of the hateful eight i think is really good too i think it's better i think it's better than the shorter the shorter version um, I appreciate Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I appreciate Pulp Fiction. I appreciate Kill Bill, to your point. Um, but I'm not particularly as interested in the end result of those films, right? They, they, it doesn't take away anything from him. It's just my personal sensibilities um, and what I like in, in films. Um, so it's, all, it's sort of like I'm saying that I love to watch him work on a painting, but then the painting... I'm like, it's all right, <laughs> right? Like, but I love to see him work on the painting and some parts of when he's working on the painting are just like, just amazing. So, um, but this opening scene, 
I have nothing bad to say about it. I think <laughs> it's just phenomenal. Um, so, so anything, anything else you want to cover about Tarantino in general before we jump into this specific um, well, scene? Just when we, as we talk about him being a student of film, oh yeah, um, I will just say that if you do live in Los Angeles, um, like I do on occasion, <laughs> yeah, and uh, as as Jay used to, um, he owns a theater, the New Beverly. Mm. um where he still programs it himself it's always um he he play he chooses the films and a lot of them are from his personal collection they all awesome. they all are actually on film and uh it's a great place to go see his movies for one thing because they they cycle through them and every i think friday night they play one of his movies you know and then they do the next one and the next one and the next one that's um, cool um but it's also just really if you like he his influences he just plays them up there on the big screen and you can go and um uh he plays vintage trailers with them you know um mm. and all of that sort of stuff so that's great um my wife and a friend and i we and it's not uncommon for him to be there we went and saw paper moon once and he was sitting directly behind us and it's just you know it's just <laughs> it's funny to hear the things that he laughs at when you're watching this movie and it's like yeah uh, you know, and he, you know, he owns it. He programmed it. Who knows how many times he's seen it, but still just laughing and just having a, just such a good <laughs> time. Awesome. Um, and uh, when my wife was working at Cannes Film Festival a couple of years ago, he, it, it was the year that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, and and that mm. that movie showed earlier in the week, mm. you know. And most people their film showed and then they left. Uh, because yeah. if you're if you're going to get an award, they tell you so you'll stay. Oh, sure. Um, and it didn't it didn't win anything that year at Cannes. Hmm. So you know he knew that, but he just loves movies so much. He stayed the whole time and yeah. was just and he was just giving standing ovations for everything he saw and for everyone <laughs> else getting awards. He just it's so cool. You know, it's just if, like it's just someone who loves loves what they do. They yeah. love the medium. They love the world. Is easily as much a fan as a creator um yeah. and auteur and that's just really re it's refreshing to see you know it's yeah. refreshing and to hear him talk about it too like um it'd be one thing if it was i actually think that he would i don't and i don't think he's ever going to do this but if, if he were to do a film podcast it would instantly be one of the best film podcasts there are mm -hmm. because one of the things that he does that I find really fascinating. And I was listening to him, I think he's on Joe Rogan podcast or something. And I was listening to him talk about films. And I previously listened to him on um, he and Edgar Wright were on an empire podcast mm -hmm. uh, together talking about storytelling and films. And he does this thing that I find really interesting he can remember a film from like the 60s that I've never heard of before. But not only that, because there are people that can do that. I know a lot of people that can do that. My former um, co-host, Daryl Smith, he can do that too. He can think of like a film. He can you know, you remember the mm -hmm. lines. But one thing that um, Tarantino can do is that he's able to tell you about what made the film great from an audience perspective and from a filmmaker perspective in a way that I think is striking because he, what it means is, is that he understands the medium and he understands what's getting the audience to, to feel emotional. And what's crazy about it is that I think he actually understand it. He understands it in a way that he understands other people's sensibilities as well as his own, which are not always the same. Mm -hmm. And that is a very, very, very insane thing 
to be good at <laughs> because most people are not good at that, right? Um, most people just kind of understand how other people think or they only understand how they feel and can take things in. But to be able to know all of that in one and be able to remember it from a movie that's like five decades old is quite frankly, mm -hmm. just a unique talent amongst humanity. Like I just, it's really, really cool to hear. So I, I agree with you. It's he's, he's fun to listen to talk about storytelling because of how familiar he is with the medium. Um, and it's and very, he also, he understands the value of the long take. Mm. which very we very few movies have long takes anymore yes uh, and 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 he is very comfortable with the long take or yeah. or even just the long scene the 20 minute <laughs> conversation scene that we're about yeah. to talk about yep if you tried to have just two people talking for 20 minutes in any <laughs> other movie um first of all they would make you cut it <laughs> yeah totally but secondly it would not be engrossing very yeah. you know like just the ability to be able to keep that engrossing uh um that's that's a rarer and rarer skill. And so, yes. and as it becomes rarer, I think that the power of the long take and the long steam becomes more powerful because oh, people, totally are, people are less used to it. And so it's more of a confrontation to this. Especially when you're, especially when people are used to watching TikTok, you know what yeah. I mean? Like that's the world that we live in is TikTok. And it's like, your scene is 10 seconds, but, um, and I'm going to, we're going to get into that a little bit later. Cause I actually have some additional thoughts on why he, how he got so good at that. Um, but let's, before we get into that, let's break this down a little bit. What about this scene works? It's a long take. It's 20 minutes. Um, and why is it that this scene appears on our list? So take it away. What do you think? Hmm. All right, let's see. Well, there are three ways to create suspense in film. Hmm. You can know something that you're, the characters don't. Yeah. The characters can know something that you don't. Right. Or there can be something that both you and the characters don't know. Mm, yeah. And I think part of what's brilliant about the scene is all three of those happen. Yep. <laughs> in exactly. the course of the scene. And it's very hard to, because often those, those are, some of those are naturally exclusive. For you to know something the characters don't know and the characters to know something that you don't know, that's very, very difficult to pull off. Yeah. Uh, just from an information standpoint, let alone a storytelling standpoint and a logic standpoint. Um, but I would say that I think that that is really the key is um, there's three ways, th really three major ways in movies to create suspense and all of them are in the scene. And so mm -hmm. that's, uh, I think, why it's such a strong scene. Yeah, well, I could not agree one more. Of, I'd say that's the, maybe the base reason it's such a strong scene. There's plenty of other reasons. Yeah, and, and that's, that's something that the, the lessons from the screenplay channel really breaks down really, really well about the difference between tension and suspense and, and how he how he use, utilizes both of those things um, in the scene when he shows you things, uh, when he doesn't show you things um, is amazing. He, he is it's 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 uh, he talks about it. And this is in the video, too. So you, you watch. I highly encourage you to as a as a uh, compliment to this show to go watch that lessons from the screenplay video on Inglorious Bastards, because one of the scenes is, is Tarantino talking about uh, suspense and he's talking about it as a rubber band and he's going, I'm going to pull the rubber band as far apart as I can without making it snap. And, and if I can do that, the farther I can pull it, the more suspense you're actually going to feel, the more tension you're going to feel in your, in your own body watching this thing, which I think is phenomenal. Um, on top of the tension and the suspense, I think we have to mention three things 
that are both writing and storytelling related that you could easily pass over by just focusing on the suspense. Um, the first is the structure. So uh, I wish I could give more credit to who I heard this from. There is a writer who, who wrote a book. Um, I got a chance to talk to her um, in person. And she, she talked about um, the storytelling structure uh, that has been utilized for ages within among storytellers. And she talks about the story starting out where everything is as it should be. The concept of shalom, the concept of peace, everything is as it should be. And then the peace is shattered. And then as you, as you go down into the pit of despair, then the rest of the rising action is conflict around how you get back to shalom, how we get back to the new, the, the new version of shalom, because it's quite possibly we will never achieve what we had before. That is so true of the way that this scene starts out. So this is just an opening scene. So we're not going to climb up the conflict ladder in this particular scene. But what we are going to do is we're going to go from a, you cannot find a more beautiful setting than where this scene starts. I mean, from a, from a landscape perspective, obviously we've been told that it's in uh, Nazi occupied France. That gives us an immediate sense of tension. But then when he opens the scene, I mean, it could be, it could be a romance. You don't know what's going to happen in the scene. It's, it's a gorgeous uh, landscape that we open up to uh, with people just doing normal everyday farming activities. Um, and of course, as this, it starts to devolve <laughs> very, very quickly, that, that peace, that shalom is shattered. Everything is not as it should be in this environment. The second thing that I think is phenomenal, and this I didn't see maybe quite as much in the screenplay itself, but because Tarantino is also directing it here, he clearly works it in anyways. The visual beauty of this scene is striking from the colors, from the camera angles, the attractiveness of the people involved in the scene. And so there's this weird dichotomy in this entire scene of the sense of everything I'm seeing is beautiful, but I'm filled with a sense of dread despite that. And the contrast there, there's a moment where he, he does this shot. And again, this would be very difficult to write, but again, as a story, as a writer influencing the story, we're just trying to set up that this is beautiful and then work the dichotomy that way. And then the, then the director will figure out how it's beautiful. Let's put it that way. But there's a shot where Christoph Waltz playing Hans Lander, or is this, that's his name, right? Hans Lander, I think. Um, the SS officer mm -hmm. is sitting across from the French uh, farmer. And I don't know how they lit this scene. I have no clue how they live, but there's, you know, the old style, I can't remember what this is called. So pardon, pardon my lack of art knowledge here, but there's a, there's a type of art where you light a certain part of the part, portion of the scene. And then the shadows are in the background and, and like, it literally like lights up people's faces. I don't know how he lit this scene, but when they're talking at the table, he starts to pan over behind the SS officer and the light, the orange, warm, inviting light is just on their faces. And if you were to film that as it, you take away the SS officer, you put in the, the French farmer's wife, that could literally be like a love scene, right? Like, like, like a warm, inviting, like, but 
it's the exact opposite of that, right? He's filming it as if it's that beautiful. And yet he's, he's working in this, this dread, the sense of dread that we have. If, if he had, if he had set this in a ugly, dreary setting, a lot of the tension would have been removed for me personally, right? There would still be tension there, but it would almost be like, it was like my brain wasn't trying to understand all of what was going on. And I just think that that is, is pretty amazing. The last thing I'll say is, and this, the writer has a lot to do with this. I think Tarantino has a lot to do with this, obviously as a director too, but these performances are phenomenal. Like, I don't even know the name of the guy who plays the French farmer, but what he is able to convey in his face with very few words is extraordinary. And you could watch Christoph Waltz in this role, do whatever he wants to. He could just go about his daily life and you would find it fascinating um, that he's going about his daily life in this way. And so these performances, I think, um, you know, in the script, for example, I noticed that when, when Christoph Waltz, uh, he drinks a cup of milk. He asks for a cup of milk. He drinks a cup of milk. When he drinks that cup of milk, he just downs the entire thing. And the way that that is written in the script is uh, he takes a long, I think it's sip. I don't remember the exact wording, but it takes a long sip and then places the glass loudly on the table. But the way he actually drinks that cup and the way he tilts it back and then, oh no, I'm just gonna go ahead and finish it. And he tilts the rest of it is alone a masterpiece of acting because he made drinking that cup of milk fascinating. <laughs> like there's not that many people that can make drinking a cup of milk fascinating, but he actually does in the scene. So the interplay between writer, director, actor in that moment, I think is pretty amazing too. Um, and, and no matter how you do that, that glass of milk scene, it's always going to tilt towards fascinating because you know, that's not why he's there. Exactly. We, we all know he's not there to drink a glass of milk. So, <laughs> right. so you know that he's really just, he's just toying with them. You know, he's there for a reason, but he's first just going to enjoy himself a little bit. And, yeah. um, but this is also, I think that's a great, since we're the impactful writing podcast, that's a great yeah. uh, lesson for writers who want to be screenwriters or television writers. Mm. Although TV is on a screen too. So we could just say screenwriting for all of that. Um, is you just have to remember that you, what you are writing is incomplete. Like yes. it is, it is not about your words, your precious words. It's about have you create, have you given words and ideas and mental pictures to the director and to the actors that can become those beautiful gems of moments. Absolutely. Um, because if they do it exactly the way you wrote it, but you didn't write it in a way that sparks their imagination. Yep. Um, then it doesn't it doesn't really matter how good your words look on the page like that ultimately the purpose of your words is to spark the imagination of your collaborators so that they will give their best uh to the project not just to look really good on the page or to read really well yes and i actually have an example of that coming up too in this third question we're going to talk about because uh, i think that that could not be more true and i think that um it's certainly true here and I, and I heard a, um, I heard a Hollywood reporter in uh, an interview roundtable, and it was a bunch of actors and I cannot remember all of them off the top of my head. I believe it was, you know, Tom Hanks, uh, Jamie Foxx, who, by the way, Jamie Foxx could tell you any story and it would be the most fascinating story you've ever heard. <laughs> um, but Tom Hanks said something that I think is really important that 
a lot of writers should pay attention to because when I heard it, I thought to myself like, oh, of course that's true. Um, but the interviewer had kind of said like, how do you, how do you guys play some of these really emotional scenes so well? Like how, do, how would you even give advice to younger actors to be able to do that really well? And what was so fascinating was that he did not give any advice to younger actors at all. He gave advice to writers because he said, you can't play those scenes if the script does not prompt that in you, right? So, so it, what it made me think of in the context of, what it made me think of as a writer, as a storyteller, was that I, it's not enough to say this person breaks down or this person starts crying or you know, pick your, pick your emotional statement you wanted to say. The actor is going to read sequentially a series of sentences or a few words. What does it prompt in them? And so you can't technically go about the process of making an actor cry. You are literally have to prompt them to do so based on the words that you put on that page. And I thought that that was just um, really, really strong advice. And he wasn't, again, he wasn't even trying to, he was, the question was not about writing, but I just remember that thinking like to myself, like, oh, you can put little, because a lot of times, a lot of times, especially if you're coming from a background that is, you know, you know, there's these film advi writing advice books out there that would tell you that you have to have a, uh, an economy of words in a script. And I'm not saying you don't, but what I am saying is, if you have to put in two or three more sentences to make that actor cry, put in the two to three sentences, right? Like, um, get them to that point. Help them get to that point, I should say, as opposed to just withholding it because you think you're supposed to just be like, no, actor cries. <laughs> you know, like, um, anyway. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask oh. you. I was going to say, do you, do you, what is your take on that? Where have you gone with that? You have much more screenwriting experience than I have. Where, where have you used those kinds of tools in the yeah, past? Yeah, well, here's something that I learned at a scene study class very early in my career. Mm. And I have found that it's still mostly true. Mm. Like, like any rule, there are plenty of places to bend it and yeah. to play with it. Um, but I find that this is a very reliable tool. Okay. And that is this that because your audience is identifying with your character, mm. um, then if your character actually cries, it provides catharsis for your audience member without them crying. Mm. But if your character fights not to cry, then it makes your audience want to cry because oh, they, that's good. They're, yeah. they're need, they need that catharsis. <laughs> that's good. And that's good. so, um, you know, and watch it, watch it on things that make you want to cry or watch it when a character cries. And of course, there are always exceptions to the rule. Yeah. But in general, I have found that it is true that if someone is like trying to cry or they just can't because of the circumstances that they're in, um, it you, because you've identified with them, you want to complete the action. You mm. want to do it. Mm. And um, so just keep that in mind when you're writing emotional scenes that um, it's great if your characters will fulfill that emotion but it's better if your audience does oh that's awesome actually that's very applicable to the to the pixar podcast that we talked about right like um we are we're watching carl deal with his wife 
deteriorating very quickly, but we don't spend a lot of time on Carl crying. So we carry all of the emotion with us. And you're right. There's no catharsis because we don't see, you know, the next time we see Carl, he's going to be a hardened old guy, probably because he didn't cry the right way. (laughs) He didn't grieve the right way. Right. So, but we grieve on his behalf and that's, that's really powerful. So that's very applicable to that scene for sure. Um, So one more question that we're going to get to before we do that. I want to do thank today's sponsor. The sponsor of today's podcast is the new book door of door. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm going to hold it up. So then you can see the cover of it door of door lost legends and sagas of pre-flood earth Uh, door of door lost legends and sagas of pre-flood earth is the work of Lazarus master Fox and Novus Renaissance. Novus Renaissance is the new platform for fan freedom, creating and defending great stories, great characters and superb secondary worlds where fans everywhere experience adventure, excitement, and wonder door of door volume one creation angels war is the explosive supernatural fantasy and science fiction series of our time that immerses your imagination in a saga forged before time was a thought and reality dawned volume one unleashes the account of eternity's most ancient bloody combat the legend of lucifer heaven's great war and the beginning of your adventure in the forgotten world of pre-flood earth await you Dorvador Volume 1, Creation Angels War, is now available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon via the link in the show notes down below, whether you're listening on audio or if you're on YouTube, it's still in the uh, show notes down below. That is at uh, novusrenaissance.com slash Dorvador. The world of fans is following us. Are you, do you dare to adventure and journey with us and witness monsters, giants, humans, heroes, villains, and gods battle for supremacy? So I'm going to spell this out. It's a long URL. I've said this every podcast. I'm still going to spell it out for you. N-O-V-U-S-R-E-N-A-I-S-S-A-N-C-E dot com slash D-O-R dash V-A-H-D-O-R. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mess that up sometime. I think I've, I think I've gotten through it so far, <laughs> yeah. but that is novusrenaissance.com. Just click slash the link in the notes, But the link is in the notes. <laughs> just click the link. It is fun for me to keep saying it, but, but just click the link. Um, and I actually did a review of this book um, on this channel. So if you want to go back and you're wondering if you should buy this book, go back and check that out. I think if you're into high fantasy and enjoy delving into creation myths and legends, you will likely dig Dorvador. Plus, Again, purchasing Dorvador actually helps us produce this show because when somebody sponsors this show, um, it means that we can keep doing more of them. So uh, we really appreciate that and help us out by supporting them. And also really quickly, the book I co-wrote with Nathan Sheck, Death of a Bounty Hunter, is available right now as a Goodreads giveaway. That means we're giving away 100 free copies, 100 free Kindle copies of Death of a Bounty Hunter throughout the month of August. So go check that out. If you've been thinking about buying it and haven't done it yet, this is a perfect chance for you to enter the giveaway and have a chance to win. I think we've got like 1,100 people in the giveaway. So you got like a 10% chance of winning. It's still really, really good chance. Links to all of those things can be found down below. And if you want to support Caleb, calebmonroe.com is the website to support Caleb. Anything else, Caleb, that you want to highlight real quick? Or real slow? No, just uh, if, you, if you haven't seen it, watch the Mongolian Connection uh, for anything else of mine that you want to see or hear or just find out what it is just go to kaylebenroe.com absolutely mongolian connection is great opening scene also very suspenseful so <laughs> you can check that out very suspenseful in that scene as, as well 
And listen to our episode where we talk about that opening scene and how it was almost not the opening scene. And then it was the opening scene that was almost not the opening scene. Yeah. Um, Just for an interesting look into the filmmaking process. I would love to do another episode uh, where you and I talk to a writer and a director together, just like, Mm -hmm. just like we did with you and Drew. That was, that was fantastic. Um, So yeah, definitely go listen to that. that. That episode was, I think if you just type in the story geeks, Mongolian connection, you'll find it. No problem. Yeah. All right, so let's get back into uh, Inglorious Bastards. Um, now, we started to get into this a little bit because we've gone from saying what makes this scene sort of work and we started to move into how could we make scenes like this work ourselves if we're from a writing perspective, from a storytelling perspective. And what, are, what about those elements can storytellers take away so they include it in their own stories, basically? So what do you think? What are the things that, besides what we've already talked about, what are some of the mm-hmm. things that uh, like storytellers can pick apart this scene and go, oh, I could use that, I could, I could use that same type of uh, philosophy or same type of mm-hmm. actual writing in, my, in what I'm doing? Um, so I'm going to talk about exposition and misdirection. I think those are the two two biggest tools that we can take from this. Okay. First is exposition. Mm. There's early on in the scene, there's a very, you've seen this transition in countless movies where they're speaking in French and he's like, well, I'm pretty much done with the French that I know. Do you speak English? (laughs) And they switch to English, um, which just makes it a little easier for us as an audience. But what it really does is reading, um, reading is not being in the scene in the same way mm. and so he, he, taking away the act of reading enables us to sink further into the scene it, in film at least when you're reading a book you're fully in the scene and you're in your imagination and right. what they're doing with words has a different purpose there right right but and so you're like okay great yeah it makes it a little easier just to sink into the scene it's in english but later he shows he has a very specific reason that he switched to english and that is because the French Jews who are hiding under the floor don't speak it. Mm-hmm. And he knows that. So he's able to have this entire conversation and even to talk very specifically about them and they don't know. And um, so all of that to say that if you have to get information across to your audience, or if you just, if you have to just do something like that to make it a little easier for them to digest the scene, mm-hmm. like make it, make it a reason in the world, mm-hmm. not just a reason in the filmmaking. That's good. And so that's a, that's a great, uh, and you also get some exposition with the SS officer. He's the SS officer kind of summarizes all the events up to this date in this area of the world, you know, like to get us up to speed. (laughs) Right. Um, But he, because he, because he is, there has already been a pattern established of the fact that he's not getting down to business just to, just to toy with people, mm. then him just sort of like going on and on and not still not talking about why he's there um, is him still toying, the cat's still toying with the mice, yeah. but also feeling like I said, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's another great way to do it. I am not a big fan of the, of the book Save the Cat, the writing book Save the Cat, which is a very formulaic approach to, mm. to screenwriting. Mm. But there's one part in there, 
one tool that he, he puts in there that I think is really fantastic. Um, I'll tell you now, and you don't have to buy the book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, I shouldn't say that because I want, I want all, all <laughs> I want people to buy as many books as possible because that's what keeps, <laughs> that's what keeps the book industry alive. But uh, if this, if you find this interesting, you may find something else interesting in there from him as well. Mm. And that he calls it the Pope in the pool. Mm. And he talks about a movie, to be honest, I don't even remember what the movie is, but they, <laughs> they have to do some exposition. And so he has two, there's two characters in this movie. They're just telling each other information so that we as the audience know what's going on, mm. but they're doing it while the Pope disrobes and swims <laughs> in the pool and swims back and like comes out. And it's just such an, you just, you're not, you just never think of the Pope as being this guy swimming in a pool that it, it draws your attention and you, and you're not just sitting there waiting for them to finish talking. You're kind of engrossed in what's happening mm. while they're talking. And, um, and so that's just a, you know, just have that Pope in the pool, like have something that is still going to draw them in. Sometimes mm. you, sometimes you just have to dump information. You've got yeah. to get something across, but this is an excellent scene of showing how you can do that. And it served the purpose of the scene and the film, and it serves the purpose of the characters in the scene. Um, yeah. So exposition. Yeah. Uh, this, the, there's a lot you can learn from exposition for the scene. And then the other thing I'll say is misdirection. Hmm. And so there's a story and this may be apocryphal. I've never, cause I've never taken the time to trace, to chase it down. Okay. <laughs> right. But whether it's apocryphal or not, what it teaches is true. But apparently, um, as you know, trailers were very different in the forties, fifties, sixties on. And the trailer for psycho, there hmm. was a trailer for psycho at least. And again, could be apocryphal cause I've never taken the time to chase, chase it down. <laughs> yeah. But it's Alfred Hitchcock who's walking around on the set of Psycho and just sort of mm. telling you, telling you what the new movie is going to be about, you know, because he was a personality in his own right. Right. And um, and trailers tended to be more conversational and all of that sort of stuff. But what he did apparently that was brilliant is he would keep stopping and like focusing on some object in the house <laughs> um, that had nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but because he because he focused the audience's attention on it later when they saw the movie any scene where that was in the background they were like is this going to be it is this we're going to find you know and so it was no creating way. creating tension but it was all misdirection there was it had nothing to do but he had signified it so that we our attention kept drifting to it and wondering and we're wondering like is this going to be it is this going to be when that happens is this going to be when that matters and uh, this scene does a lot of that. Mm. Um, early on, you have you have all of these like lingering looks um, yeah. the SS officer has for the eldest daughter, and right. you have all these close-ups on her face. Yeah. You don't have close-ups on the other daughter's faces, right. and so it makes you feel like there's something going on there, and you start to you start to wonder like you know is she maybe actually a Jew and maybe he only had two daughters, you know, like it, like it starts to make you wonder what is going on. Right. Why is, the officer, is this foreshadowing something? Yes. Is the yeah. officer really there for her? Or, you know, um, but it has nothing to do with the scene. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? It has nothing to do with the scene, but it really gets you keyed up and wondering and you're thinking. And, and but again, it's the same thing of focusing on something that's not going to matter. Mm. Close-ups on her face not close-ups on the other girls' faces. So it yeah. makes you feel like something is happening there. Um, and same thing with the smoking. He's like, may I smoke? Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're used to when someone says that, that they're 
trying to do something or to tell someone something or they're trying to hide something. But again, it has nothing to do with any of that. He's literally just smoking you know, to, <laughs> to calm his nerves. Right. Um, and and th throughout the movie, this happens several times. Um, yeah. uh, throughout the scene, I should say, through the movie as well. But misdirection, this sort of like, let's take a moment because we're used to on a TV show, if you're watching a scene and then you see a close-up of someone put down the TV remote, you know that later on the TV remote is going to be how they solve the murder, right? Or yeah. part of how they solve the murder because it's like, right. why else would there be a close-up? Right. But if you know that and you put close-up, if you put a close-up on the TV remote and the bowl of fruit on the table and the door knocker, <laughs> but it turns out that none of them, you know right. what I mean? Then you're playing with our expectations and it's misdirection and... Um, just like, again, the daughter's face versus the other daughters. And so there's two tools that you mm. can write into a script. Mm. Um, uh, the exposition and misdirection, these are used very, very well in this scene. So watch this scene and you can learn tools that you can apply to scripts of any kind, really, because tension, dramatic tension, yeah. it, it exists in every story. Yeah. Not every story is not every story is someone's life on the line. Not every <laughs> right. story is it is it a thriller per se. Right. But the ultimate uh, dramatic question and tension mm. of what's going to happen next is that's going to be in every story. Mm. And so you can you can use mis and you can use misdirection on 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 any of that. Anytime what what is going to happen next comes up, um, and then as far as exposition goes. First of all, try not to do it. But if you find yourself, you're like, I really just need someone to say this. Otherwise, this movie doesn't work. Yeah. And it happens. You'll see the best filmmakers and the best writers. You'll still see it happen. You'll see yeah. it happen in Oscar winning films. Sometimes you just need to get a piece of information into your audience's head so that the rest of the story will work. Yes. Um, and but when it's done well, you don't really notice that it happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, and, and, and actually, I think that another area of Tarantino's writing where he is masterful is his ability. So exposition can be interesting or uninteresting. Generally speaking, it is information communicated. Show, it's telling, not showing, generally speaking. However, to your point about the Pope in the pool, it doesn't mean we still can't be interested in something that's going on, despite the fact that they're telling us something, not showing us something. So in your, in your example the, with the Pope, they're showing us something else while they're telling us something, right? Like, um, what are they? I should say that's Blake Snyder's example, not my example, but yeah. it, same, yeah, yeah, yeah. same, same result. Same result. Yeah. Same result. Great, <laughs> great example from Blake that, um, that is a good, good, uh, application here. Um, what I think is so fascinating about um, Tarantino and the way he does exposition with his characters is that his characters and the way that they speak is so interesting that you'd kind of listen to them say anything and it would be interesting because they're saying it. Um, a good example is a really good example there's many in um, in Pulp Fiction because there's so many interesting characters in Pulp Fiction. But a really good example is um, 
there is not that much that's important pertaining to um, John Travolta's character's trip to Europe. But you could hear, you could listen to him, John Travolta's character, and Samuel L. Jackson's character talk about menu items for 10 minutes and you'd be interested in it, right? They're driving in a car. Now, granted, you you do know, to your point about, um, about you know, the unexpected versus the expected and what we know and what we don't know. We do know that these are two hitmen, most likely, gangsters at least, driving around talking about fast food items. And, and that in and of itself is like, it's such an unexpected thing for them to be talking about, given their profession, that it fascinates us. So, to, so your rules still apply, but because those two characters are so interesting, we could literally listen to them talk about whatever, and it would be interesting to us because they're talking about it. Um, well, and there is even a little bit of misdirection going on there, yes. because what other movie would have people talk about cheeseburgers for five minutes <laughs> right. and it have nothing to do with the story? You exactly. Know? So there's a part of us, there's an instinctive part of us is like, well, this must come to come into play later. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so we're, right. we're paying attention. Right. But I will say that this highlights another thing, which is mm. don't try a 20 minute scene unless you are a master of dialogue. Because Ooh. no matter how interesting what's happening in the scene is, if you are not, if your dialogue is not masterful, yeah. 20 minutes will be too long, no matter what. <laughs> no matter um, what. And there's a, there's a reason that these kind of scenes only pop up in a few filmmakers' movies, right? You, you, have, you have the Quentin Tarantinos, the Woody Allens, and the Whit Stillmans of the world, and yeah. they can do these really long scenes that are literally nothing but, any, but people talking. <laughs> right. My Dinner with Andre is another um, famous yeah. example. Yeah. But for most of us mortals, we shouldn't be trying that because that's <laughs> because that's that's some of the best people at dialogue in the entire world <laughs> and um now it's i would say don't be afraid to shoot for it yeah right but how do you know like how do you know if your dialogue is good enough for you to write a long scene it's simple write the long scene and then give it to people and if they're all like this scene was four times longer than it needed to be yeah. your dialogue's not there you know <laughs> <laughs> um by the way uh the, that is just to pick up on that just really quickly uh it's a good segue into something else i want to talk about too but i wanted to bring it up because you made me think of i'm not necessarily a, gr a really big woody allen fan he is one of the most lauded writers of our time i mean look at his academy awards performance but i will say that um midnight in paris is one of my favorite films in the history of film i just think that that film is amazing now it has a lot of there's a lot of dialogue in that film um the film is almost entirely based on the fact that they're going to have conversations what i think is so fascinating is that a guy like woody allen and a guy like tarantino they know in the dialogue what most writers would write in a mundane way, they have a, a, the idea in the back of their heads that there is something inherently interesting in what the dialogue's saying that makes it onto the screen. And that is something that's like, because think of how many times you've read something from somebody who's not master level dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're looking at the dialogue and you're like, I mean, this seems like it's trying to be clever. Right. Like it seems like it's trying to do something that it is not really accomplishing. Um, I, I myself oftentimes struggle with uh, subtext in my in my dialogue. 
Um, in fact, the one the one script that I gave uh, I gave Caleb to to read, he he took a, he took a, he took a red pen to ninety percent of one character's dialogue, and it was appropriate to do so. Um, and I think that that's it's basically like saying the dialogue is about something in this interesting that seems mundane to the average human, but in the hands of these characters and in the hands of this writer. There's something about it that's that's pulling it out that is really interesting. And so in Midnight in Paris, it's like it's like the concept of thinking to themselves, like, I just want to hear what he thinks Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all these other authors. I just want to hear what they would say, because I've just heard about them and I've seen their writing so much that it almost doesn't matter what they say. I just want to hear them say it. And, and Woody Allen kind of knows that about it, right? So he can do things with that dialogue that's that's probably in the hands of the wrong person, just not interesting. Um, same thing with Samuel L. Jackson and, and, and John Travolta. If you have them talk about hamburgers, not only, not this, and this is why it's masterful, by the way, because of your point, it's, it's misdirecting. There's actually a callback to it later on in that movie. And... It is just interesting because this movie's told out of sequence. <laughs> That's a good point. Possibly earlier on, <laughs> and it's just so fascinating because there is something really interesting about the why the burgers called something different in France. Like it's just, it's just is. There's just something interesting about that. And so, most likely, whatever you think is interesting, this is not as interesting as that. Um, but if you work on it, I think you can. I think you can always improve. To the, to your point, it can be. You can keep working on it. And I do have thoughts about that in a minute, but I wanted you to finish. I cut you off a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and so here's another way you can test that is try it out. Mm. Like go to a party and tell them about the Royale with cheese and why it's called that versus and, and are they are they interested? Like, are they like, tell me more? Right. Then maybe you're you've got a good way of talking about it. But I will say that this highlights another thing mm. that writers don't often think about. Mm. Uh, early to mid-level writers don't often think about. Sure. Um, and, and, and to be honest, I think writers above that level are not necessarily thinking about it consciously, but they just do it. They know how right. to do it. Um, right. uh, like they're able to do so many things because they've internalized it. Yeah. But dialogue is a, is a two-sided tool. And we tend to think dialogue is a character tool. Mm. And it is. Mm but it is just as much a world building tool. Yes. And so the way characters talk to each other and what is worth spending time talking about, what is not, is building the world. Yeah. And because real life, mm. like we don't just talk about the plot points, right? right? Like the, we're not just trying to like, we're not just conveying the information that we need to do the next thing in our life. That's not how conversation works. Right. Most of conversation is about nothing. It's really about, you know, <laughs> right. it's really about being to, just being together. Right. And, and, and so movies can fall into this, this trap of just like everything everyone is saying is telling you something about their character or giving you information for the story or moving the plot forward. Mm. But there is another function of dialogue, which is world building. And so... Mm just knowing that this is the kind of world where two hitmen will talk about cheeseburgers <laughs> for five minutes. Right. That builds in your mind, first of all, that it is a world. Yeah. Because in the real world, people talk about nonsense mostly. Right. 
And right. so on screen, if you have characters talking interestingly about nonsense, it really just makes you feel like you're in more of a fleshed out world. Right. Um, but it also, the types of things they choose to talk about and how long they spend on it also tells you things about that world. You know, like yeah. you're going to hear very different conversations at a college than yes. you are in a high school classroom, yeah. than you are at a workplace, than you are at a mom's group in the park, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. The type, everyone's going to be talking mostly nonsense because that's, that's what most of us do. Right. But the type of nonsense being discussed and how long it's spent on it is going to vary radically depending on, on which one of those sort of microcosms that you're in. So absolutely. Dialogue is as much a world building tool as it is anything else. Yes, it is absolutely one of your primary character tools for sure. Don't like, yeah, don't like throw that out the window, but it also serves this other purpose. Yeah, I think too, you can, you can hopefully, so getting into the next point, which you had made earlier that I was also going to make in this very section is that these things are not done without failing at them many times before you're successful. Um, and you also will learn, here's something that I'm not good at today. I can always improve at, but it's just not necessarily my strong suit. And so why, why, why spend a lot of time on that aspect? I watched to, to this point, I watched um, the green Knight last night. They had a, they had an a, a 24 had a special screening and my wife and I didn't feel like going to the theater. So we, we, we booked the screening last night to be able to watch it just from, from home. And um, there's hardly any dialogue in that film. And, but the visuals are stunning. So if you know, I write stunning visuals and I can write those things into my scripts, take some dialogue out. You can practice on the dialogue, see if it works in your early drafts, run it by people, see if they find it fascinating or not. And if they don't, go back to your strong suit, right? Like you can play with different things, but always land, you know, where you're, where you're stronger. And to that, to that point, I have, I believe, and I'm not the preeminent scholar of, um, of film that even Tarantino is, but I would argue that I have seen Tarantino films where he for sure breaks the rubber band where he keeps pulling the rubber band and keeps pulling the rubber band. And at some point in time, me as an audience member goes, what are they doing in this scene? And I don't care anymore. And there's no tension and they're not misdirecting and it's just boring now. Um, I, I feel like I, you, if you said to me, please name that scene, I would be like, you know what? I feel like I, that was, that happened to me with, um, with Jackie Brown, but I can't remember which scene exactly. Um, and that's what's so cool to see here is that, you can sort of, in my opinion, see the development of Tarantino's masterfulness throughout the course of his career and in different aspects of his writing, different aspects of his storytelling. And, and that's why, to me, it's almost, it's almost even more satisfying to see it in this film because it's like, oh, this is what he was trying to do in the previous film and it didn't work for me, but look what he's done with it now. And now it's the best thing I've ever seen in terms of this, in terms of suspenseful film that lasts 20, uh, scene that lasts 20 minutes. Um, so sometimes you will need to fail over and over and over again before you really perfect. And by the way, the other thing I haven't mentioned that I keep meaning to mention, he does this twice in this film. And both times he does not break the rubber band because he does it later when they're in the, 
the bar and all the Americans are dressed up like, spoiler alert, all the Americans are dressed up like Nazis. And he does the exact same thing he did to start the film. And that scene is also amazing. Yeah. So, and, But that scene also wouldn't have the same tension without this scene. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So he even knows what he even knows. He I, I took it. the, I yeah. took the, see, because you have confidence in him because he stretched the rubber band as far as he could stretch it in minute one to minute 20 of the film when minute whatever it is you know minute 45 of the film rolls around or minute 60 he can do the same thing to you again and you're super down to go along in the journey so that really speaks to that's a great point it really speaks to even how much more of a master he is at that point <laughs> um so any other any other thoughts about inglorious bastards inglorious bastards by the way uh definitely outside the realm of geek although it is an alternate history film um but it's just really well really really well told so any any other thoughts about this film before we close out this podcast uh i will just say this is a this is only loosely connected to what we've been talking about it has (laughs) nothing to do with inglorious bastards per se yeah but with you talking about practicing getting Mm. things wrong a lot before getting Mm. things right Mm. this this thing come up and i've been thinking about this a lot lately because it's i'm observing it happen in my own writing Ah, career And that is the kinds of movies that you like to watch Mm. and the kind of movies that you want to write Mm. and the kind of movies that you're good at writing Mm. are three different things. Now we like to imagine that they're all the same, Mm -hmm. but they are not. Um, The, there is your, you will discover there is a kind of movie that you are Mm. the best that is, that you can just execute really, really well, but it may not be the kind you really wish you were good at. you know you might be a really great writer of action films but in your heart you kind of always wish you were a comedian but you're (laughs) just you just can't write funny scripts you know what i mean um and and, but maybe what you really like to watch is period drama (laughs) right (laughs) you know what i mean which is not so sometimes there's a huge venn overlap and they're mostly the same but just realize that they are three different things yeah and realize that that overlap is overlap of three different things. It's right. not just this one thing. And so I've been learning more about some of the kind of movies I want to write and some of the kind of movies I enjoy and versus the kind of movies that I'm particularly good at writing. And there are differences, you know, so. Well, do you, can you articulate the differences now or are you still working on it? Uh, I I'm still working on it, but I'll, okay. I'll tell you an example. I'll just give you a, a basic example. Uh, sure. I'm, not going, I'm not going to talk about specific genres or anything because that actually is not going to help anyone except me. Right, right, right. <laughs> but right. I'll talk about sort of how this came about. Yeah. I was part of a screenwriting accelerator program in uh, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Oh, cool. And I was trying to write a film hmm. and everyone else finished those four months with a first draft i did not yeah uh be i because i broke this story and broke this story and broke the story mm. over and over again i wrote seven treatments for this wow. starting starting over seven treatments yeah and at the end as i was writing the seventh one <laughs> i was also like you know what i'm just gonna try something else and so i also sat down and in one evening wrote another treatment and took Whoa. both of them took both of them in the next day. Yeah. And the one that I'd written just the night before, just off the top of my head, 
immediately everyone is like, that's the one you need to write. Like they were uh, immediately interested in that because that is something that just comes out of me. Uh, that's a strength. Yeah. And this other one I've been trying to write, I just could never make it work. And I can, yeah. I can feel it and I can see it. And I know the kind the, the, the comps, the types of movies that it's like, mm. but I just could not pull, like I could not pull it off. Not that I'm necessarily going to stop trying, not that I yeah. won't be able to pull it off at some right. point in the future, but treatment after treatment after treatment, it was not working. And I knew it wasn't working. Mm. The people giving me notes knew it wasn't working. We were trying, we were trying to find how it worked, but it, <laughs> right. but in order to make the story work, what I found is that it always had to become a different type of story. Uh. And, and then suddenly it started working, but that's not what I wanted this one to be. That the kind of story that it was to make it working was actually kind of more towards my strengths but yeah. i was specifically trying to do something else and um so that's just an example you know seven seven treatments with a lot of great impact yeah. uh, great a lot of great input and yeah. feedback from other from very experienced writers trying it trying it again starting over <laughs> trying it again and just could couldn't make it work but no. this other one i sat down one evening wrote it out <laughs> just and it work. just came it just it just worked it just worked immediately and so so let me ask you this in relation to that because i find that pretty fascinating and i just um i just mentioned to my wife uh she she was she's my wife is an editor and she uh not a film editor a writing editor and um she was asked she she she's been filling out applications because she's looking for she's looking for jobs and she turned to me and she goes what makes an editor from a writer's perspective valuable? And it's the same thing with you testing these scripts with people, right? And I go, it's, you know, it's all about, it's all about the perspective and not trying to change what the writer is trying to say, but rather giving them perspective on how well they've executed what they intended to say. Um, and, I, and I wonder, did, the, did you, when you wrote that seventh treatment, was that a, a completely different concept or a different execution of the concept? Completely different concept. Completely different concept. Different concept. Like, interesting. Different genre, just that's really fascinating. So you have an instinctual, you have an instinctual ability to draw out emotion and interest in people via certain types of things, and you're still working on trying to draw out that interest and emotion from other types of things. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. So and and you know that's a moving target for all of us sure. as we develop as writers. Yeah. But it's what it's really sort of brought home to me is that I used to think what I wanted to write and what I was good at writing, mm. I kind of didn't, in my mind, I didn't differentiate them. And I didn't yeah. differentiate that from the types of things that I like to watch. Right. But there's a lot of stuff I like to watch. So like, I don't ever really want to work on that show. You know, <laughs> right. I don't want to write that stuff, but I really enjoy consuming it. And so I've just been within myself sifting through and trying to find where the borders of those things are mm. uh, what do i want to write and what am i good at writing yeah. and does it need to be something that i enjoy watching or you know like yeah all of that stuff well this is a fascinating concept i i have i have not studied that this concept from the angle that you just described um meaning my own writing i have studied this concept extensively from a startup business perspective and it is the same principle that is a lot of times i meet people who are starting businesses of which i have been one of them before and when they describe to me what they want their business to do 
And then when they describe to me how they make money, they are not the two same, that they're not the same, right? Mm -hmm. So they have a desire to do something because their heart wants to work on that thing, but they are just so good at doing this other thing that actually makes money and people demand it. And so the question is always, the question is always, and, 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 and I think the question for the writer is similar to the question for the startup founder. Is it more important that I fail for a longer period of time, but achieve the thing that I feel like I'm called to, or is it more important for me to be sustainable and to be able to make a living while I do this other thing and learn at it? Right. So, so you use a certain amount of your time and energy will be, it needs to be either spent on the thing that could make you a ton of money or spent on the thing that's going to make you feel fulfilled. And how much is each one going to be, right? Um, and I think that that's sort of true of what you're saying as well. If I if I really want to write, you know, Iron Man stories, for lack of a better example, um, but I'm really good at writing Buffy the Vampire Slayer stories, um, do I want to go make money at the one thing because at least it's similar to, because it's still storytelling? Or mm -hmm. do I want to continue to perfect the other thing? And maybe I got to go get a different job to be able to perfect that other thing because it's not there yet. Um, these are the questions that we will be asking ourselves. Yes. Some of us and for I entire will say, lives. <laughs> I will say some people will mishear this as sort of a self pigeonholing. And that mm. is not what I'm saying. Yeah, no. All I'm, all I'm saying is be aware of the difference yeah. between the things you like and the things that you're good at. Because yeah. you need to know if you're not, if I like this and I want to do this, but I'm not that good at it, you need to know that you have to grow there. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, maybe alternate projects, maybe do one where you just revel in what it means to be excellent, <laughs> lean as hard, right. lean as hard as you can into your strengths sure. and just, just go all out. But on your next project, try to do something outside of your comfort zone and you might fail. You might, you might write seven treatments and it just never comes together, but you've learned about yourself and you've grown as a writer, even if that particular project doesn't come together. Um, yeah. So never stop trying new things, but maybe don't do it every time. And maybe don't just rely on your strengths every time, right? Yeah. Because then yeah. otherwise you just end up like, oh yeah, you know, here's that guy who does that thing. You know, we all yeah. can probably think of a writer and it's like, it's like, novel after novel, movie after movie, or show after show, it all feels and sounds the same. It's like, that's just that person's thing. And uh, and actually, maybe they're very happy doing that. Yeah. Um, right, right, right. But if you're not that person who's going to be happy doing that, then don't just do that over and over again, because that's what people are willing to pay you for. Exactly, um, exactly. Uh, there's a great quote from a guy named Will Mancini, which is, um, if you don't know who you are, you'll end up becoming whoever people pay you to be. Yeah. Well, that's, 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 <laughs> that's exactly that quote is sums up the entire startup uh, yeah. problem that they have, right? If you don't, if you don't know what you're setting out, if you don't know what hill you're setting out to conquer, but you make a lot of money conquering one hill over the other, you're going to end up ma just making that money. You know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's not necessarily, this is what you're, I think both of us are saying this. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not bad to make money at a thing that you're good at, but keep pushing yourself to see if the thing that fulfills you um, can at least be something that you get to engage in and have a hobby around it. And it will keep, it will, it will probably feed, it will probably feed your, 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 you won't burn yourself out just making money. It'll feed your soul to the point where you can actually yes. do whatever you need to do. And 
the reality is that if you lean into your strengths, if you try to improve something that you're already good at, mm. you will get much further yes. than trying to improve something that you're bad at. That you know, is so um, true. It's your strengths are strengths for a reason and they can get you, your strengths can usually carry you past places where you may be weak. Um, yep. You know, because no writers are equal at everything. All writers are better at something than the other. But if they're really good at this one thing yeah. and this and this other part, yeah, you know, like they're, it's, you know, like that's not the best joke in the world, but because, <laughs> but because it comes in this movie that I love because of uh, they're so good at what they're doing, yeah. um, it is the best joke for that scene and that right. world. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's not like the purpose of this is not to be a gut buster comedy, but you know, it's, but that's, a, the, there needed to be a funny line and it worked. It was funny, but exactly. that's maybe, maybe they're never going to write a comedy or want to. Right. Um, your strengths will carry you farther than your weaknesses. You should always be working on both. Yeah. Um, but uh, find out what they are. And the best way to do it is to ask other people, mm. you know, mm. the, I made this discovery because I kept turning this thing in for notes and getting people's <laughs> feedback and yeah. it was not working. Yeah. And then I turned this other thing in and immediately everyone's like, <laughs> yeah. but they saw it and I couldn't. Right. They, they could immediately see the difference. Um, and I was so up in my head and had been, had this story and idea in my mind for years, even before I started working on it, that it's just like, I just didn't have any perspective and it yeah. really takes perspective. So find people whose taste you trust, Yeah. write things and ask them, like, what do you think my strengths are? And what do you think my weaknesses are? Yeah. And uh, now you, if you're going to ask that, you have to be willing to hear the answer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Even an answer you might not like. And, but that's ask, that's why you want to ask people that you trust. And you only want to ask people if you're really willing to face that reality and, th mm -hmm. and start thinking about the kind of stories you can build based on your strengths versus um, yeah. how can you improve your weaknesses maybe within that context yeah. or on your own time? Um, but improving your weaknesses is maybe not the thing you'll get paid to do. Well, there's a really interesting example I saw recently of what you're talking about too, because we've talked about this before on the show about collaboration and how important collaboration is. And um, I was watching Netflix has a really fun series called uh, The Movies That Made Us. And um, talk about good editing. I mean, the, the documentaries are, these documentaries are edited so well. They're so entertaining, primarily because of how they're edited. Um, but there's one on Pretty Woman. And um, what I found fascinating about it, and what I found fascinating about Hollywood in the 80s, is that Hollywood in the 80s, the goal was to get you to feel a complete set of emotions. That's not really true anymore. Like the green Knight is not trying to make you laugh. Like there's no moment in the green Knight where you're like, Oh, I should have laughed at that. Right. But Hollywood in the eighties was like, we will have the darkest scene and then they'll try to put comedy in it. Like they were really just across the board with the, with the types of things that they were doing. But my point in this is that pretty woman, which started out as being named 3000, um, was written by a guy who literally was sitting in a donut shop talking to hookers, real, real life hookers on, on Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And yet it became one of the most entertaining, fun movies. I had never seen it. So after watching this documentary, my wife and I watched <laughs> it. I'm like, that was a phenomenal movie. I got no idea. Uh, it's a Disney princess movie. It's rated R. Um, and, and because people saw in that script that was fairly dark and like it, like a study of 
of women who were dealing with that with Hollywood Boulevard and all the things that, that, that they were dealing with in their lives that got them to that point. It took all these other people, including people you never thought would do a movie like this to create what, what then became pretty woman. And it was really messy along the way. And so the, so the point is maybe your, even your concept is not bad, but it needs other voices to speak into it to really bring it, bring about what could be amazing, you know? Yeah. So when I ask myself, when I'm putting together a story, mm. um, as it starts to take shape, as I, as I have most of the beats worked out, mm-hmm. I ask myself, do I have at least one scene mm. that takes place in each of the major, most seven major emotional areas? Ooh. Um, and if not, do I have a clear reason why not? Interesting. And so either, exam- either answer is acceptable. Yeah. I don't because mm-hmm. or I do. Yeah, but not I don't without a because. <laughs> right. Um, that you know that's that's personally how what how I work. But the seven major emotional areas. Do I have at least one scene that is primarily one of those? And if not, why not? But that gets yeah. me thinking. That makes me think through what emotion. You know, I also ask myself emotionally, what do I want the audience to feel as they walk out? Yeah. Um, yeah. Brilliant. You know things like that because they're gonna wherever your audience's emotions go throughout the thing (laughs) the main one that will stick with them is the one they walk out on yeah that's very true so the movie can have a lot of sadness but if you send them out feeling happy and laughing at things they will think of it as a comedy primarily (laughs) you know and but at the same time if you if the movie is mostly good things happening but there's one tragic thing at the end and that's the note that they walk on that movie will always be it's a tragedy you know regardless of what else and so that's i spend a lot of time i'm like i'm like okay i want them to think back on this as a what kind of movie i want them to feel what when they remember it right Um, and then you know and that that affects how i want to shape the end of it Yeah. yeah that's awesome that's awesome Whenever, whenever I think about the ending of a film, I always think about how people, how people respond to our, to our, um, our, our, our Star Wars fan film, because we could be, we could be, whenever it's, whenever, whenever we have a screening of it, where, whether it's just with our friends or whether it's in a big theater, we, we did one time. It is so funny to watch, especially when people are going through the process of watching films you know that are that are supposed to feel happy and nice and great um ours does not make you feel happy and nice and great and it does not come to any good conclusions that it just leaves you with a oh yeah this is this is maybe how life works and that kind of sucks and you're gonna so the people will they don't know whether to clap or not because it's like what do i mm-hmm. do now and, that, and that's that's literally what the intention of that film is right. to do um but i just kind of laugh because that's kind of how it ends up being yeah and, and i think the lesson is is not that any your movie doesn't your story doesn't have to end any particular way yeah just however it doesn't do it on purpose exactly exactly right (laughs) you know if you find that you're trying to do x but then people read it and they are not getting x yeah then rework it or maybe maybe you need to be doing y instead but yeah whatever you do at the end of your story just do it exactly exactly (laughs) exactly agree agree um 
and I think that's it for today's show. You got anything else? That's it. All right. Well, that is it for today's show. Don't forget to subscribe to the Story Geeks podcast on your preferred podcast provider or over on the Art of Storytelling, the Story Geeks YouTube channel so you don't miss any episodes. In our next show, we'll be talking about the opening scene of The Matrix. So you won't want to miss that. That's not a long one, I don't think. A little bit shorter of a one there. Probably more of a sequence than than an entire opening scene, but we'll we'll see where it leads us. So we hope you'll join us for that one. Um, if you want to know about all of our upcoming episodes, check out the Story Geeks Facebook group. In fact, if you have questions for Caleb and I, you can ask them in that group as well, and we'll be happy to answer them as we talk about these shows. And you can ask us about a previous topic, too. We can address those in this show. And finally, as always, special thanks to our monthly Patreon supporters. Here are the awesome supporters who support our nonprofit through Patreon. Zach Linton, the No Midnight Podcast. Sean R. Reed. Anthony Holder, Ray DeLeon, Brianna, Bryce Cox, Young Money Savvy, Mary Baldwin, Wade Johnson, Jim Baldwin, Kimberly Lujeau, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and Connie Moe. Please consider supporting us, even if it's only a couple dollars a month. Learn more at thestorygeeks.com. Until next time, question everything in your favorite stories and always seek the truth. <laughs>